Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. This is a special update episode. I'm interjecting this in. Instead of doing the normal episode I was going to release, I just wanted to get on top of something that has been happening in recent news articles I've seen. Something exciting about the Tonkawa people that I have already covered. And you're like, well, you already covered them. Well, no, there's a lot more to learn and to keep learning. And something really neat has happened. Recently, uh, at the end of 2023, I'm recording this in January 2024. And hopefully, some of you have already seen some of the events that have happened. But I wanted to, uh, you know, do something a little bit special to get it recorded and get it out so y'all can kind of look into it yourselves and see what's happening. Now, down in Central Texas, there's a river called the Little River. And the lands rising up on either of the Little River's banks grow willows, cottonwoods, pecans, elms, sycamores. And the lands are a mixture of rolling blackland prairie and post-oak savanna. And for at least 10,000 years, people have called these lands home. And the Little River would have been an important source of water for them. Among the peoples that called it home were the Tonkawa. And there was recently an interesting report in the news relating to them in a very special site near the Little River in Milam County. Now down in Bell County... Between Waco and Austin, the land passes river and the Leon River converge and become a stretch of waterway, as I've said, called the Little River. And about five miles southwest of Cameron and about eight miles north of Rockdale, the San Gabriel River adds to the waters of the Little River. Now, this river drains an area of about 7,500 square miles, just a little bit over, And its waters generally run southeast about 75 miles from where it began to where it in turn feeds into the Brazos River in Milan County, just south of Port Sullivan, a site where steamboats used to carry people and goods up the Brazos River from the coast in the 1840s and 1850s. Little River serves as the southern boundary of Milan County, while the Brazos acts as the county's mostly northern border. Now, Cameron, Texas, with its population of 5,306 people, serves as the county seat of Milan County. You look it up on a map, been through it. It's a nice little area, nice little community. Had some good barbecue there before. And about one out of every five people in the county call Cameron home. Not far from Cameron, the county seat, the highest point in Milan County at about 492 feet above sea level. Not that much, you would think. It's located about 13 miles southeast of Cameron, where the Brazos and Little River meet. And the Little River turns into and flows with the Brazos. And there's also a little unincorporated community called Gauss on U.S. Highway 79. Now, this summit, while not really fulfilling the requirements most people would expect from its name, is called Sugarloaf Mountain. Now, in the earlier episode on the Tonka I shared how, back in 1994, Virginia Combrink, 
who was at that time a president of the Tonkawa Indian Tribe in Oklahoma. She came to visit Milam County, and she identified Sugarloaf Mountain as the birthplace of the Tonkawa. They called it, or called it, La Tortuga or Red Mountain. And according to the Tonkawa origin story, way back in past, a wolf flipped a tortoise over it on its back. Not that big a deal. Dogs and wolves and coyotes will mess with things like that. But when this wolf did this, it, it revealed a deep hole into the ground, into the earth. And up until this point, the Tonkawa had been living in the earth, is the story that's passed down. And the Tonkawa people emerged from the earth. And La Tortuga, that poor tortoise stuck on its back, transformed into the sacred red mountain we now call Sugarloaf. The Tonkawa have revered the side and the great wolf ever since this happened. And it's remained a part of their story. And it's very important, so important, that the Red Mountain is included as part of the official Tonkawa seal. Now, back in 2012, there was a 27-inch by 42-inch aluminum historical marker. You know the type. It was erected near the side. And it explains that the top of the mountain is capped with red sandstone rock. And near it had once been an Indian village known as Rancheria Grande de los Piame. Now, los Piame were the dominant nation of a 22-nation group that called it home at one point in time back in the 1700s. And it's believed that they were grouped together there to find strength in numbers against Apache and others who were aggressive against them. These were smaller groups that banded together is the thought, idea and thought. And the village also served as an important center for trade between different regions of Texas. Back in 1716, Spanish explorer Diego Ramon reported that there are about 2,000 people living at this site. So it's a significant sized village at that time and with the arrival of the Spanish some of the peoples living there including the Erva Piame they decided to go and enter the Spanish missions at San Antonio but most are believed to have become part of the Tonkawa the Mayaye and the Yoane tribes now, according to historians and anthropologists Many of the bands that became the Tonkawas were Southern Plains people that lived similar lifestyles to the Lapan or Lipan Apaches. Some are said to have originated up in what is now Oklahoma before moving down into what is now Texas, where they hunted buffalo and lived in teepees. And, of course, before the arrival of the horse, like many Plains tribes did, they would have been using dogs to transport their property and their hides. Now, in the classic of Texas history, the Indians of Texas, W. W. Newcomb wrote, the word Tonkawa was derived from the Waco's term for them, Tonkawea, which means they all stay together. Tonkawas called themselves Tikanwatik, meaning something similar to the most human of people. 
and as we've seen and you will continue to see, Native peoples often had a name for themselves, like the Comanche's name was Namana or something along those lines, and it meant the real people. And for the Tonkawas, it was Tikonwatik, which means the most human of people. And Newcomb continued by saying, During the 17th and 18th centuries, the scattered Tonkawan bands were reduced in numbers, and by the beginning of the 19th century, the 1800s, the surviving remnants had united to become a tribe, henceforth known as the Tonkawa. It is only after these groups become the Tonkawa, he wrote, the tribe, that a fairly full description of their habits and customs becomes possible. Now, among these groups were the Tonkawa proper. And there are other groups, in, like I've mentioned, the Mayaye, or the Ioannes, or Wichita's which were, they were actually a Wichita tribe that were apparently absorbed by the Tonkawas in the second half of the 18th century. There is also, as I said, the Erva Piame, which has been classified as a Coatecan band. And there were several others among these 20-plus peoples that grouped together and came to form what we call the Tonkawa, or know as the Tonkawa. And, as I mentioned before, some recent research doesn't agree with the Tonka origin story, and that's okay. And some research, historical and otherwise, suggests that Tonkawa proper, main Tonkawa people that became the Tonkawa tribe, inhabited northern Oklahoma back as early as 1601. There appeared to be evidence of Europeans meeting people there that match and coincide with who the Tonkawa were. And by the late 1600s, they had moved south to the Red River and then into Texas, where they joined the other peoples that became the modern Tonkawa Nation. Now, this is how scholars explain this past, try to put together the past of the Tonkawas. They have their own story. Now, the Tonkawa Indian Nation website has something to say, of course, about themselves, and... It says, the Tonkawa belonged to the Tonkawan linguistic family that was once composed of a number of small sub-tribes that lived in a region that extended west from south-central Texas and western Oklahoma to eastern New Mexico. The Tonkawa had a distinct language, and their name, as that of the leading tribe, was applied to their linguistic family. They were one of the most warlike tribes during nearly two centuries of conflict, with their enemy tribes on the Western Plains and with the Spanish and later American settlers in the Southwest. Their men were famous warriors and their chiefs bore many scars of battle. The Tonkawa women were also strong physically and vindictive in disposition. And this is, like I said, from the Tonkawa website, sharing on their own history. An expert on Texas indigenous peoples that I've quoted before, David LeVere, he writes the following in his great book on native peoples of Texas. The Tonkwas of central Texas, as we think of them today, were some of the most complex and fascinating of all the Indian peoples of Texas. Ethnogenesis took place constantly in Texas as Indian peoples made and remade themselves. Bands split, rejoined, were absorbed by other cultures, or were pulled into Spanish missions, 
where they created kinship with other groups. Rather than a single, racially pure Indian nation, the Tonkawas were a composite people who created themselves from the many Indian bands roaming Central Texas. I would like to add that that kind of seems how a lot of peoples are. We as Texas are, we are a lot of different peoples that have come together here in this great state to become what we are, as well as that's kind of what America is after all, isn't it? Now, early non-indigenous travelers and settlers relied on the native trails and Sugarloaf Mountain served as a landmark and served as a landmark on the road system that was based on native trails that became the El Camino Real and it was used up until at least 1790 and in the 1820s Sugarloaf Mountain was also a landmark on the route between San Felipe de Austin and the Waco Indian Village that was where the modern city of, yes, you guessed it, Waco is now located. Who'd have figured that's how that came to be? Now, with the arrival of Stephen F. Austin and his settlers from the east, the United States, the talk was found someone to ally themselves with against their other indigenous enemies. As the Handbook of Texas article on them says, the Tonquas often aided their new Anglo allies against the Comanches. The Tonquas entered into a treaty with Stephen F. Austin in 1824, and Austin's Anglo-American immigrants needed help against the Comanches. And the Tonquas saw it as beneficial to them also because they saw that the Anglos could help them against the Comanches and others as well. And this kind of partnership began then. Two examples of Anglo-Tonkawa partnership can be found when the Tonkawa assisted the Texians at the famous 1840 Battle of Plum Creek. And they also fought along with the Texas Rangers in 1858 at the Battle of Little Road Creek. And they also assisted in many other group battles as well. Now, the Handbook of Texas continues saying... The Tonkawas remained staunch allies of the English-speaking settlers in Texas. They continued to help the Texans and later the United States during their wars with other Indian tribes. In the 1850s, the Texans set up reservations for the Tonkawas and other tribes up on the Brazos River in Young County. Now, some Texans still didn't like the fact that Indians were in Texas. And they're Whenever some raids would happen, they would blame the natives on the reservations. And this led to strife and some aggression against the people settled on the reservations. So in 1859, the Tonkawas were removed to a reservation in Indian territory. By fighting alongside the Texans for so many years, the Tonkawas had made many enemies among the tribes forced to move with them to the Indian territory. And this, of course, led to a not-so-good result. Now, on October 23, 1862, a large party of Native Americans attacked the Confederate Allied Wichita Agency, where the Tonkwas then lived. The attackers burned the agency headquarters, killed some Confederate officials, but the main focus of their fury was on the Tonkwas that lived there. They killed Chief Placido and about a 100 of his people. David LeVere writes that following the 1862 attack, quote, 
the Wichita's Caddo's and other Indians at the agency scattered. No one could say exactly what instigated the Tonkawa massacre, as it has sometimes been called. Some said it was an attack by pro-Confederate Wichita's Comanche Shawnees and Delawares on the pro-Union Tonkawas. The Wichita and Comanches blamed the Shawnees and Delawares, saying they were taking revenge for Tonkawa cannibalism. Others said it was a Union attack on the Wichita Reservation, and the Tonkawas just happened to be in the way. Whatever the reason for the attack, the few surviving Tonkawas fled back to Texas, settling around Fort Belknap, not far from their old reserve on Clear Fork. There they served as scouts for Confederate Texas forces. Only years after the Civil War would the government step in and provide a reservation for the Tonkawas in the northern part of Indian Territory, well away from their old Texas Indian neighbors. Second time around, they decided not to make that mistake that they had before the Civil War. Now, as LeVere said, the Tonkawa survivors of the attack in 1862 moved down into Texas with hopes of security. They had been good allies to the Texas people before the war. And in 1866, Governor J.W. Throckmorton asked the legislature to donate supplies and a league of land to them. And eventually, most of the Tonkawas eventually settled in the vicinity of Fort Griffin. And while there, they assisted the United States Army as scouts. But after the Indian Wars, Fort Griffin was abandoned in 1881. And so now having assisted both the Texans and the United States Army, they were again disappointed by being forced away. In 1884, the Tonkwas that remained were forced to move to a reservation in Indian Territory. And the Handbook of Texas states that in that year there were 92 Tonkwas, including a few Lipans. The Tonkwas record the following about this time period on their website, and I want to share that. The Tonkawa were removed from Fort Griffin, Texas in October 1884. They were transported by railroad from a station in Cisco, Texas. A child born on the way was named Railroad Cisco to a temporary stop at the Sap Fox Agency near Stroud, Oklahoma. The entire tribe wintered at the Sock and Fox Agency until spring, then traveled the last 100 miles by wagon, fording many rain-swelled rivers and axle-deep mud caused by severe spring rains. They reached the Ponca Agency on June 29th, and then finally came to Oakland on June 30th, 1885. This was the Tonkawa Trail of Tears, a time in our history that should always be commemorated lest we forget. And the Tonkwas even changed the time of their annual get-together powwow to June to commemorate this time. Even this reservation, about 100 miles north of Oklahoma City, even it was not going to be secure for the Tonkwas. Because in 1893, the Tonkwa lands were opened up to white settlement. But as all people that persevere do, they persevered. 
and they continued trying to preserve their beliefs and identity. And they adopted a constitution in 1938 and became officially the Tonkawa Tribe of Indians of Oklahoma. Their numbers were low, but they have since recovered. Uh, just a couple of decades ago, the numbers said that they were at about 700 people in population. And most live in Oklahoma, but recently, some Tonkawa descendants in Central Texas areas apparently have been working to preserve their heritage and reclaim their tribal rights. But according to the current president, who I'm going to introduce us to in just a minute, current president of the Tonkawas, as of right now, there are about 950 members, and most live in either on the reservation or in Oklahoma. But what about this sacred site of Sugarloaf Mountain that I started talking about? What's the point of all this? Well, I'm getting back to that. I do my little tangent and come back around to the main point. It remained important to them, and they even commemorated the Red Mountain, Sugarloaf Mountain, La Tortuga. They commemorated that. It's on their seal. Now, the land itself, over time, uh, there were a couple of developers that bought the land containing Sugarloaf Mountain and developers doing what developers do to make a dollar. They subdivided the land and resold it to others. And for several decades, the site was in private hands. Now, this is where it starts to get interesting. A legend had been passed down and developed over time that told the tale of buried treasure at the top of Sugarloaf Mountain. And in 1994, two treasure hunters doing what treasure hunters do started to remove the top of Sugarloaf with hopes of finding glory and riches. They didn't and largely because probably there's no treasure there, but mostly because of public protests, people stepped in and recognized that this was an important place and they were going to destroy it by taking it apart. So they lost their chance to do this and they were forced to stop. And also in 1994, as I mentioned earlier, the president at that time of the Tonkawa Indian Tribe of Oklahoma visited Milam County and identified Sugarloaf Mountain as the birthplace of the Tonkawa. She told a group at the Gauss School Library, a little small community down there, she said, this mountain is the ancient site of the Tonkawa tribe's most religiously sacred place and to the Tonkawa people is certainly as sacred as the city of Jerusalem is to Christians or Mecca is to Muslims. 1994, it's been over a hundred years since the Tonkawas were again forced to leave their home in Texas. And this was also the beginning of a decades-long, 30-year process that recently reached an exciting conclusion. Now, one of the people that had been interested in Sugarloaf Mountain in the area for a while was a person who'd grown up in the area, a local resident Dave Cunningham. And he and others tried at first, back in the 90s, to, they tried to get the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department to purchase the site and turn it into a state park. And that would have been really cool, would it not? 
I mean, Texas has several state parks, but I'm always happy to hear of a new one opening up because this land is preserved for everybody to appreciate and enjoy. And especially when it's a place of historic nature, that's that's a good goal, right? But did not succeed, and maybe that's for a reason. We'll see. Later, a couple uh, by the name of Leon and Kay Herzog bought 700 acres, and that purchase included the side of the mountain. And they became, in time, interested in the mountain's long-term protection. You know, the future is unknown. They wanted to try to protect it from somebody, again, trying to come in and destroy it. Because it's from what I've heard, and it's a beautiful sight from it. It doesn't sound like it's that impressive, 430-something feet above sea level, right? But apparently it is something to behold. And they became interested in finding solutions to keep it safe in the long term. Now, Dave Cunningham, he remained interested in this as well, according to news reports. And he made overtures to the El Camino Real de los Tejas National Historic Trail Association. Look it up, see what they're doing, what they're involved with. They're an interesting organization that I, I really am happy exists. Now, the association was interested because it was a site on the El Camino Real. So they were interested in leasing the land with an option to buy it. That brings us up to 2015. In April 2015, a man named Russell Martin was elected president of the Tonkawa Nation. And, you know, he became interested in the Tonkawa origin and homeland. And actually hadn't known a lot about some of it. And it was more remarkable to him. Throw in also near this time, a producer wanted to make a documentary. A filmmaker started a documentary on the Tonkawa. And plans are that it should be released in 2025. And he had Martin visit Sugarloaf Mountain. And Martin is quoted as saying, Once we got up there, I'm not a real spiritual person. I'm more of a realist. But when I got to the top, to be honest with you, it was really overwhelming feeling. You just knew that you were somewhere special. Now, having visited there, Martin asked the producer who had worked with the landowners to get to film there. He wanted to see if they were interested in selling it. And this is where something cool happens. Serendipity kicked in. And the Tonkawas started working with Cunningham and others in the area that were interested in preserving this special place. And the El Camino Real de los Tejas National Historic Trail Association. And the Herzogs agreed to sell. And Martin went to his people up in Oklahoma. And they gave him unanimous approval for the tribe to make the purchase of the land. Now, in December of last year, I did not know any of this was happening. I started seeing reports about something significant relating to Sugarloaf Mountain and the Tonkawa. And so on December 12, 2023, that was a Tuesday, the Tonkawa tribe of Oklahoma sealed the deal to purchase the 60-acre plot of land where Sugarloaf Mountain is located from the private landowners. They held a ceremony after the 
agreement was signed in private. They went out in a hell of a ceremony at the base of the mountain to celebrate the event. And I'm looking forward to what's coming from this because I want to visit someday, and I hope you consider doing it as well because they're going to do some really cool stuff with the area. They're preserving it, but also want it to be a place of education and share their history. And so it remains a special place for the Tonkwas and locals alike care about it. For example, this gentleman that I mentioned before, Dave Cunningham, who's a long-time resident of the area, a Gauss resident, and he said of the experience of going on top of Sugarloaf Mountain, he said, you can go up there and you're looking out across the river bottom. You've got somewhat of an optical illusion to where you feel like you're so much higher than you really are. It's a dynamic view And to a lot of people, it's a real special place, and certainly to the Tonkawas. Now, KBTX News 3 and Bryan College Station shared in a news story, the Tonkawa, a Native American tribe indigenous to Texas, purchased back the land with the hopes of protecting it and making it into a public park and museum. In a ceremony held on Tuesday, that was December 12th, 2023, as I said, More than 100 community members, including elected officials and the County Historical Commission, witnessed the occasion. The news station also said the land purchase comes 150 years after the forced removal from their ancestral grounds in Milam County. Private landowners, in collaboration with El Camino, Real, Los Tejas National Historic Trail Association, and the Tonkawa Tribe of Oklahoma are partnering on the initiative. Their joint effort aims to transform the small mountain nestled in central Texas into a historical park. In the terms of the deal, the Tonkawa tribe acquired the mountain in its entirety, which is a good thing. They are also committed to ensuring public access to the site and promoting the conservation of the 60-acre location. Now, one of the people involved with this and helped make it happen, of course, was there, Russell Martin, Tonkawa tribe of Oklahoma chief and president. He was president and he shared the Tonkwa's happiness at having been able to reclaim this part of their land. And he said, how often can you buy your homeland back? You know, it's unheard of. You can't do anything like this without the support of a lot of people. It's just all the pieces fell into place so quickly, so it's a miracle. I'll say that. He also said... I think it's important for Texas to know there were Native Americans there, and not only that, but they were abundant there. I think it's a part of history that's maybe been pushed to the side. I want the next generation to know. I want them to start embracing that and being a part of that, and hopefully, I want them to accept us. I want them to realize what happened. I think that part of history has been neglected. I absolutely want to share that with everybody there. And he also said, with that being said, I hope we can have a bigger impact here in Texas. You know we want to be a part of Texas. We know we're from Texas, but we want to be part of the community and everything. Also there was Stephen Gonzalez, who was executive director of the El Camino Association. I'm not going to say that long name one more time. 
And he said, it's the first time in the history of the state of Texas that this kind of thing has happened, where a tribe that was formerly from the state has come back and purchased a place which is so central to the story of their origin. We're going to be able to work with them and the Camino Real Association to develop it into a public park in the coming years so that more people here in Central Texas can understand this history and importance of what this site is and what it means to the Tonkawa, but Texas as a whole. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. So there we go. There's an update on the Tonkawa and this exciting news about their purchase of a sacred site to them. It's good for them. It's good for the state of Texas. It's good for Texas history that a place like this will be preserved and available to everybody to be able to experience it and see what it's like and to learn from that experience. The Tonkawas did play an important role in Texas history by working with and allying with the Texans and their wars against the other native people, especially the Comanches, Kiowas, and others. And there are a lot of tribes like that. I could name the Delaware. Uh, there's a lot of stories I can tell you about the Delaware that's not necessarily known that well, but should be. And that's one of the things I'm working to do here is share little stories that sometimes aren't necessarily included for time or just because people don't in the past haven't considered it that important to include. So that's going to do it. Like I said, this was just an update. I just threw it together real quick. I've been kind of under the weather. You can probably tell from my voice. And uh, yeah, we're going to get back to the next scheduled uh, episode that's going to be about bias in history and activist and activism in history and some of the things that have been going on. I'm getting back to Texas history. Somebody wrote me long ago, not long ago, and uh, mentioned that, you know, those last few episodes haven't been necessarily Texas history related, and that's why they listen. And I appreciate the fact that people are sticking with it and struggling through some of the weirdness that I've done, it's personally just something I've been working on for myself. It's the Lesson Zero episodes we're supposed to have started out, uh, had it slotted at like three episodes, and it's grown into above and beyond money more than that. But it's a learning experience for myself and trying to establish what I want to do and want to share and also show that there are criteria that we need to hold ourselves to when it comes to sharing history and I am trying to maintain a standard and uh, when it's my opinion I hope you can tell it's my opinion but when it is fact you will know the fact and I, I promise you I will always make sure that I hold to that standard so thanks again to everybody for listening thanks to Derek McLennan for the theme music he has a new EP and the work should be out soon he's just waiting on some things to get finalized so you'll be able to go listen to some new music from that great artist soon We'll see you next time here at Texas History Lessons. You can write me at texashistorylessons at gmail.com. Like my friend Michael Sullinger did recently, I'm going to be, as soon as I can get the time here, I'm going to sit down and write a response to him. He had some great thoughts and comments, and I appreciate hearing from him always. And, uh, yeah, if you have anything you want to add that I get something wrong, let me know so I can correct it in the future. 
or if you just have an opinion that you want to be heard, I'm happy to share when I can with the public what what I hear from others. And uh, yeah, that's going to do it. Take care of yourself. Take care of one another. Be kind. Adios. Adios.